I I prefer I prefer a, a Pinot Grigio, uh, but I, I like what you've chosen. It is very uh, American. Well, now I I understand that that has you know uh, a little bit of a barb attached to it, uh, but 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 that's okay. We're not. That's kind of why I asked you to come here. We're, we're viewed as uh, ignorant and kind of without class and you kind of represent class itself and i was hoping this is this is true we are way classier (laughs) than you and we are okay with that it's all right because it gives us dimension as a people it keeps our monarchy where it should be when you show that you're not as good as us (laughs) Look, I, and here's the part of it. Okay, so I'm so glad you said that, and and I'm glad no one's listening here. I feel the same way. You know, I feel like, all right, you know, I'm I'm the first black president, but I am a little better than you know everybody who who didn't become president. And what I was hoping to do is, how do I keep it going? I'm, I was thinking okay. about we only do four, eight years. We do eight years. You've done you've done sixty at this point. It's it's been a long time, and I've been wondering about this. Why is it that you only do four years? Uh, but George, you uh, well, need uh, to come over to our way. I know. Well, it had to do with George Washington. You don't want to look like you want to become a king, and we had stuff against you. But there's a lot of advantages. I mean, you, you and your little corgis running around. So cute. There's a lot more advantages. If you come over to our country, you could have full reign. You know, my son really shouldn't be in charge. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. I mean, I don't like to. I've had a little too much <laughs> wine right now. You know, let's just let's just roll with this. Okay. Are you are you ready? Yeah. To roll. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna do. Uh, I'll I'll set us up with an intro. I'll give. I'm gonna actually give him an official intro, which I never do. Anna, what do you think of that? I think that would be really good. I All think right. it serves a good one. Let's just let's just flow with this and um and see where we go. We have some ideas and Deanne, like literally you could throw things in, do whatever you want. It is it is open. Okay. Cool. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. I get the first question. Yeah, we'll see about that. Good luck. <laughs> Good All right. <laughs> Here we go, Warners. Welcome to another episode of The Women Your Mother Warned You About. I'm Gina Tremarco, one of your co-hosts with my lovely, cheeky co-host. Susanna Gray-James. Welcome, Susanna. And today we're super excited that we've got a really cool guest on the show today. I am super stoked about this. Mr. Dion Flynn is in the house and I got to see him at a BMW conference. Supplier Diversity, right, Dan? Yeah, it was Supplier Diversity Day 2022. Yes, and I like fell in love with Dion because he was the lunchtime show. He was the lunchtime act. (laughs) I don't want you guys to think that means everybody was eating while I was talking in the corner. Or they were distracted from eating because he was so engaged. Everyone was starving. Everyone was starving. Very, I mean, it was, he was basically doing his own late night talk show. And I was mesmerized by the, we talked about this last week, like the, the, the simple, the simplicity of the concept of it. And of course, as entertainers, like I love that kind of stuff of, of engagement. And I really want to talk about engagement today because 
it was so cool having this talk show kind of thing going on where he spotlighted executives at BMW, which is something we talk about in improv all the time, making other people look good and putting them in that spotlight. So it was a really cool concept to do that, introduce them, talk to them in this entertaining style with a band. And I'm like, Susanna, we have to do this at the Outbound Conference. Like, I want a band and a talk show and you to be my 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 person on the side there and a box of talent. And so so of course, of course, I like, you know, stop Dion and I'm like, oh my gosh, you gotta be on our show. So a little bit about Dion for those who don't know him. He is a teacher, improviser, comedian, performer, writer, and army veteran, best known for his impersonation of Barack Obama on The Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon among his more than 100 appearances on the show. He's an expert in fun and innovative ways to help connect people with themselves and others. Um, And there's so much more about him, but that just kind of gives you um, just a quick spotlight and highlight. And of course, obviously, I'm in love with that whole improv piece of it. So welcome. Uh, Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much. What a great intro. And I'm really glad that you uh, enjoyed the show. We had such a great uh, time there. Lots of laughs. And, you know, uh, I think we know that there's a thought that there are corporate type of people and then there are artistic type of people. And, you know, when you go in and work with them, um, a lot of times people say they, they will assure you, you know, this corporate people will assure you, I'm not artistic. I don't want you to, I'm, I'm not an actor or a comedian. You know, everyone's always saying that. But of course, we know that everybody uh, can shine and everybody has a creative something, you know, and they just don't recognize it all the time or talk about it in those terms. Anyway, mm-hmm. I'm glad you were at the show and I'm delighted to be here with both of you. Awesome. Thank we're you. so happy to have you. Thank you very much for coming. And I, like Gina, have, have heard you speak, um, not at the same event. I wasn't secretly hiding there, although I wish I was. <laughs> um, I've, I've, heard, I've heard a lot of what you, you speak about. Um, for example, today I was listening to one of your, um, your series on like your secret power. And I love the fact that you talk a lot about the kind of psychological side of how to empower yourself. Um, and I know that creativity is a big part of that but for you as well. Absolutely. Um, it's funny, the psychological part, you know, I have a, you know, I, I have a degree in acting. I have a degree in classical acting <laughs> from NYU's graduate acting program. So please d- d- treat me with respect for this next <laughs> period of time. Stand back. Don't make direct eye contact unless I'm ready. You know, Larry Olivier or whatever. Um, so there's that. But then there's also this goofy stuff that I learned in New York City right after that. Uh, you know, how to improvise, um, how to work with people you've never met and sort of do this codified system of how do we play together and make a lot of fun. And then you mentioned, uh, you mentioned, Susanna, the psychological aspect. I've also trained very heavily under like Dr. Tian Dayton and people who are into psychodrama and um, yeah. Yeah, psychodrama mm-hmm. where you just Love quickly in, in, a, in a sentence, it's dealing with past stuck places Mm -hmm. through with improvisation. So you sort of do a role play. So, so I'm very interested in those modalities and I've gone through lots of different processes to go really serious and kind of heavy with stuff and then bring it back to fun. So I'll sneak in some, I'll sneak in the heavy stuff just sneaks in. 
but we come in for fun. We're like a Trojan horse of comedy. We, we sneak <laughs> in and then the depth it just appears. Ooh, you know, we, I don't like come this. In, we don't come in heavy. Heavy. Mm. Now, this coincides a lot with um, Gina and I. If you've listened to any of our previous podcasts, we often relate because we're very close in the business. Thank you. We are in the business world. So we talk quite a lot about um, things like selling and dating and how they kind of coincide with each other. And we were having a chat only the other day about intensity, right? And we were talking about how I was saying how I've got a friend who struggles to get into romantic relationships because they say their intensity scares people away, which got us speaking about selling and small talk and those types of things and how intensity affects one's sales pitch. Have you got anything to say about that? Because coming from an improv background and then looking at someone who's maybe a bit more intense and as you might say, heavy. Yeah. How do you think that works within a sales relationship building environment? The first, the first thing that comes to mind, I feel like human animals, I watch a lot of nature documentaries, or I used to, I think I saw them all, but I did at one point watch a lot of them. I just feel like everybody knows the smell of desperation. It's like one of those natural skills we have. And, and I might not mean it, and I didn't mean it at certain points in my life when I was desperate, but I just had it on me. That's mm-hmm. all. And people knew it. That you, you just it's like the smell of alcohol when someone's just trying to drink and work at the drawbridge at the same time. You know, Bob, you can't operate the drawbridge while drinking. You, <laughs> well, or, you <laughs> because well, it's just people are no one's <laughs> complaining because you're in this booth alone, actually. <laughs> you know, so anyway, yeah. so it's that. So, so the, the intensity, it's the architecture of the intensity, I think, that matters. There's an intensity that comes from heavy life experience, and that person is just locked in. And that's a kind of intensity where they're maybe at a higher level of consciousness and presence, and that can be off-putting to people that just kind of want to bounce around and don't really want to go there. And you get that, you know, not everybody wants to go visit the, the Dalai Lama or whoever the spiritual gurus are. Some people just want to go through this lifetime on a very bouncy level. And they might describe a spiritual thought leader as intense, as very intense. And then there's another kind of intensity, which is where you show up on the first date with the, with a U-Haul, with all of your belongings, <laughs> you know, and you're ready and it doesn't matter. And I feel like what I understand about that, I'll I'll speak about it instead of speaking about it as other people who are ignorant and making that mistake. I often try to talk about it as myself at a certain point in my journey. Okay. So it just, it, it, it activates a different part of my mind when I do it that way. So when I was desperate, when I would show up, save me, you know, I have the three S's that I talk about, you know, there's like three S's when you go to an audition, right? Screw you, you know, cause some people go to auditions. And they're like, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to be the one to decide whether I'm valuable or not. And mm-hmm. the whole attitude is screw you. Right. And it comes through and it doesn't taste good. And it doesn't smell good to anybody. The other S is save me. You know, <laughs> somebody comes in, they're just like, I really need this. And I don't, I don't know if I'm even right for this part. I know it's the part of a 70 year old black man and I'm a young white boy, but I just need this part. <laughs> and, and the third one is what I like to call the third S uh, shall we dance, Ooh. which is I've got the music, you've got the lyrics, you know, you've got some of the choreography, I've got the, the, the whatever. 
and we'll, like we'll work together. There's you've got something, I've got something, and nobody's at a real, um, you know, disadvantage. There's a real collaboration that can happen. And mm -hmm. um, how do you assess that? That takes work and listening and knowing what you bring and what you need. That is, that's the name of this episode. Shall we dance? Screw you, save me, shall we dance? <laughs> that's amazing. You like that? I, d I mean, it really comes down to that, especially in sales too. think about any, you know, we're always selling ourselves, right? Like the audition or getting the next gig or selling your product. Right. And sometimes you come in with a, I don't need you, cost, you know, attitude towards a prospect or like, I really need this. I really need to close this deal. <laughs> or you're like, hey, let's dance through this. How do we make this work? And yeah. I love that kind of like, here are your three lanes. Our approach in general, I think, in any type of relationships that we're having, whether it's business or personal, going back to what Susanna was saying from what we talk a lot about the dating analogy. And, you know, do people who have good personal relationships, this is like, Susanna, you brought this up earlier before we got on this. And I'm, I was thinking about it. Are you a better salesperson? If you're just a better relationship person in general, it's a pondering. No, it's a great pondering. Um, and I'll just, I'll answer it with a question and then maybe take a stab at it. Are you a better artist? Are you a better improviser, better actor, better, whatever you're doing? If you have better relationships, what, here's what I can say about that. I teach improv. I teach it to people that think that they don't need it. I teach it to people that love it. I teach it to people who are serious actors. I teach it to people and we're practicing. I, even to say, even as I'm saying, I teach it, I teach it. It's we practice it together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't do this because I'm great at it. Um, I, I've gotten a little better at it over the years. I do it because I'm actually really bad at the things that improv espouses. I was at a certain point. I was very self-focused. I didn't know, recognize, or endeavor to discover the value of other people that were near me. I was very much, you know, just the sort of big performing uh, buffoon who doesn't really see himself and didn't listen. I, I, I was in the graduate acting program and 15 teachers sat around me in my first year, I think, first year. And the 15 teachers, like 18 people in this three-year program, and 15 teachers are sitting around me in a semicircle. And they've, I've been there just a few months. And they said, I'd never to that point been evaluated this closely by a cadre of anything. And so I'm sitting there and they go, you know, Dion, the thing is you, you don't listen. And I went, I'm sorry, could you say that again? I was, my mind was, I wasn't listening. Um, <laughs> no, but it really woke me up. I was like, what are you talking about? I don't listen. Mm. I went to the library like that night, the Bobst Library at NYU, and I got some books on listening. That's when I first discovered that listening was something that you could do better or work on. And it was very different from hearing. Mm. Yeah. It's very different from hearing. I remember when I first started doing sales training with new starters, and we'd have a whole hour of learning how to listen. And they'd be like, are you serious? We're going to do an hour on listening. I was like, yeah. And after it, they come away and they realize actually, do you know what? We, we don't listen. And we also know what it's like not to be listened to. And 
I wonder how many salespeople skim it, skim over that because they're like, yeah, I listen. They'll be stupid. Of course I listen. But actually, you did the right thing. You went to the library. You went to look at it. Not everyone does that. Do you know what the difference was? The difference was I was in this program and I really valued it. I really valued. Okay, so this is when I think people change. Um, I listened because I wanted what was being presented to me in that program more than I was invested in staying the same old way. I really wanted it. Nobody that I've ever met is going to change in any meaningful way unless they want to do it. I've really hit bottom in some way. Had to, as I always say, I always have to have my face scraped across the concrete before I'll change. Mm. But eventually I do, you know, I do. I'm very stubborn, but the changes, and I can look at the different times. That was one of them, learning how to listen or learning that listening was a thing. Um, they've come after a great deal of pain. Really? Because I think yeah. you're, from hearing you speak, I mean, you're definitely someone who values learning, right? Learning is a value of yours. And this is the thing yes. that I find quite quite a struggle sometimes when I've been managing salespeople is that they've got it. They might be brilliant imp- improvisers. They might be great actors, all the rest, but they don't want to learn. They, they know it all. And that's a mindset, um, which is very difficult to get people out of. Why do you think it is they don't want to learn? Where does that come from? I think it's a value. I think people have intrinsic values. For example, when I'm in the car, I read books, right? Some people, no, 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 I'm not going to, I won't read books. When I'm in the car, I listen to books. Um, Whereas some people, they just want to listen to music. Some people, they just want to talk on the phone to their friends. We've all got things that are important to us that I'm only happy if I'm learning. Some people, I'd rather not learn. Or let's say an instruction manual. Some people will, I really want to look at the instruction manual and get this perfect. Some people are like, no, I'm going to do it on my own and I don't need to look at that instruction manual. It's all different types of brains. And the well, way- I was going to say, it's also different types of learning styles too, right? Some yeah. people need instruction books because they need pictures. Some people need to listen. I'm, be- I'm a better listener of books than I am a reader mm-hmm. of books. Right? Like I just, I just learn better that way. Or I learn by trying things with my hands versus reading the instructions mm. you learn by doing you're I, I learn by though. doing yeah but yeah. you're curious to learn and not everyone has that curiosity well i think that also comes back down to like the the object play and improv and you know i started doing improv when i was in, in college so i've got a couple years under me but that was still pretty young in age to take that on and then to keep like like Dion said we practice it. We don't necessarily teach it. It's a practice. Very much so. And I was thinking just now um, in response to people not wanting to learn, <clears throat> I, I think of the different moments that I find myself in front of a group and how I got there. <clears throat> Sometimes I'm thrust upon them because someone else has purchased the training. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. yes, then you will have the type of, me- you yeah. know, the person who has a lot of things to do and they've, you know, they've already left the room, let's say. And I use comedy and I was, you know, I've practiced stand up comedy for decades. And so I also understand that kind of a room is very yeah. different. It's different than the improv yeah. spirit. Uh, yeah. And I understand how those two are different, but sometimes the tools of, of, of stand up comedy can be very good for engaging a skeptical mm-hmm. audience member. Um, 
because you can be really kind of, you know, I can read things. I can read things really well. It's a, it's, in fact, it's a, it's a level of perception that is so keen that it doesn't even help me in my ordinary life. In my ordinary life, I have to d- dial it down and wear lead glasses because <laughs> you can't look that deeply into everything all the time. I would die. I can't have regular relationships that way. Yeah. Hypervigilance, yeah, yeah. we call it, mm-hmm. you know. So anyway, um, back to this point that you were making. Yeah, some people don't want to learn. Um, I would probably word it different for myself, which is some people don't want to learn at certain moments. Some people don't believe in the moment that they have anything to learn about this topic. Mm, I think that's the, and because, and the only reason I word it that way is not to, you know, correct what's already been said here. It's just, I'm in here. I've got to find a way in. You know what I do? Here's what I do. I try to make it super clear to them that this is a basket of information or smorgasbord. You take what you like. I'm not here to be smarter than you or to inculcate or force feed anything. And then we number people off. I number people off. I always have them self-select. Who hears like a 10? That's a performer. That's somebody waiting to take the microphone away from me. If I stop talking for too long, you'll take over. Where are my 10s? And they self-number all the way down to the ones. And I say ones, people who most, most times they don't even tell you they're ones because they don't trust you. So then we know who everybody is in the room. And then I let people sit out. And then the skeptics and the ones and twos can all sit out. I always give everybody the option to sit out because what you're saying is very real. That energy, if I go up against that energy head to head and make it the, the main thing, like you're going to do this, mister, <laughs> I'm done, you know? Yeah. And I think in that kind of situation, you're, you're, they're set up to be learning, right? Because they're in an audience. What, what I'm kind of thinking is your ability and what you've done in your life, because you, you've been through struggles, right? And you've kind of come out the other end and you've, you've worked things up yourself. You've sought some kind of improvement and help throughout your life. Is that right? Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And that's a ma- major difference from what I used to do before. My solutions from about age seven uh, onward for a number of years were, I'm going to solve this. I looked around my life and I said, here's one of my biggest problems that got me in the most trouble in my life. I decided at age seven that others were incompetent. Now, whether or not that was true about the people that were raising me or <laughs> not or what, I decided that, okay? And I was like, I've got to be awake and aware and I got to look out and I got to fix it. That's wonderful. It can do certain things. It can teach you how to cook at an early age. Mm -hmm. I was always entrepreneurial. Um, But where it hurt me for a long time was I didn't think anybody else knew anything. I didn't think anybody else could teach me anything. So the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to me in my life is the ability to live fully as an adult who knew it all and everybody else was didn't know anything to becoming someone who, who learned how to learn. And not only learned how to learn, learned that what I do in collaboration is better. Yeah. And, and improv has taught me to be hungry and eager for the other person's input. Even though now on this very podcast, I'm monologuing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a lot of monologuing. You'll see, you'll notice. But I'm, but I'm aware of it. 
you know. Um, but there still is a collaborative spirit to it. I mean, we've had people on this 100%. show, trust me, who have monologued it where we're like, can we just trash the show? Because couldn't take a breath, wasn't aware of themselves. Right. Yeah. And and you, yeah. you hit it. We talk about, you know, you call, call it hypervigilance. I call it hyperawareness, right? This is, um, I think if we dial back to what you talked about with the listening piece, like so much of that is connected to the continuation of improving self-awareness and emotional intelligence. And I think there are motivators, right? Like when someone said to you, you don't listen and it kind of opened your eyes of like, I'm not going to get what I want. So you stayed coachable because you heard that. Then you got a thirst for it. How do I fix that? And then that, I think it sounds like it opened the door for you to be like, I need to be learning. A hundred percent. I feel like one of the big doors that gets opened at those junctures is the door of, oh my God. I've been like that the whole time. Like I miss this yeah. whole area of possibility. So it can even tap a greedy part of the person. You know, it doesn't have to always be an egalitarian desire for spiritual enlightenment part. It could just be a greedy part. Like this is valuable, you know, and this is a valuable thing. Maybe you've missed. Maybe you haven't. Um, yeah. Fascinated by this thing, going back to when you were seven, that you had this kind of persona attitude of, nobody knew anything better than you kind of thing where where yeah. do you think that came from because there's there's a level oh, of confidence I'm, that goes with that swagger at seven yeah yeah, yeah d definitely at well seven, yeah it all i think some of it had to do with um you know my 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 mom got an unnecessary hysterectomy in the okay. 70s they were sort of giving them out because you could charge more for them, you know? Uh, so they were like, ah, let's just throw one in. And so she was launched into early menopause. And with that came uh, medication. Mm. And when you have a parent who is medicating, mm. self-medicating, and they've cha she changed, I was like, nobody is really helming this ship. Wow. And I got panicked. At some level, I was actually longing i started to have these fantasies of a funeral like i was like you know i went to one funeral and i thought it was great everybody was together <laughs> my grandmother was dead in the casket and everything but everybody was having fun and everybody was together and i started to think a lot about you know a funeral and i was my mom was kind of dead mm. you know at past a certain age she transit but there was no official funeral you know i was the one who was close there was no official funeral no official markation line that this leader was needed to be saluted wrapped in a flag draped mm. casket and sent into the wow. ocean and and so there i was i figured that all later you know years later um but what the immediate effect was i turned to my own addictive stuff and i um thought i had to run the show and i mean on a global god like even god huh. level you know uh, like yeah i've got there's nothing looking out for me wow it's got to be me yeah, that and and it, it's not a great it's not, you're not I personally I don't know about all seven year olds, but I wasn't really capable of taking over my own life <laughs> and <laughs> running everything. But I did my best. I did the best I could with what I had I started like food. I went to food. This is one thing. This is worth I went I started a food like I would start food clubs. I would eat a lot of food like I would steal food from my the kids that 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 were uh, in school with me and I would like eat their food, eat my food and uh, got really heavy. 
And I started <laughs> a, I started a, a Doritos club in the trailer park where I grew up. And the Doritos club was like this. Hey, kid, you know, you go get me some money. Uh, you, you bring me the money. I'll buy some Doritos. Uh, I'll eat all the Doritos. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. You know, it was a bad club for the membership. I'll tell you that much. You, you should be a recruiter. You should be a recruiter. Get people to do what you want. Well, you know, it. and that's the thing. Well, you, you know, did when you were seven. When you're seven and you're trying to, um, you know, you become manipulative, you become addictive, you become all these things when you try to run the world. When I did try to run the world. And I do improv in like lots of different residential rehabs mm. and stuff, you know, all over the country too. So there's a huge helpful piece in improv with recovering yeah. people that it occurred to me probably seven years ago. And I called up this place and I said, look, I got this idea. They were like, we get it. We see it right away. They got it. And they started having me in, you know. We can go into that too if you ever want to, but that's oh, something man, else. I, I want to know about how improv can help people in recovery, like in, in rehab. Okay. If, if, I'll tell if you that's exactly. all right. 100%. When you do improv, okay, when I come into your workplace, right, where you're somebody, a lot of times you're a boss and then there's these other people in there too that aren't, you know, there's all, there's all different kind of status mm -hmm. levels in the yeah. room, right? You're a big boss, whatever. And I'm asking you to like mirror exercise <laughs> with somebody, you know, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I'm asking mm -hmm. you to do exactly what a person who's just gotten sober in any field, any area of addiction, I'm asking you to do exactly what they're being asked to do. Mm -hmm. And that is to navigate the world without your old tools mm. and to use new tools to try and see the world for the first time. Nervousness comes up, vulnerability, and then conversations can develop even in non-recovery environments about power, vulnerability. How does it feel when you're asked to do something and you kind of are, you don't know how to, what is that feeling? That quaking, what's that quaking nervousness when you're not in control? You know, what is that? You're being asked to, to adopt this new methodology. Here you go, guys. There's a new methodology. Just take it in and run with it. Um, and you give leadership a chance to try that stuff and feel that quaking vulnerability and do it with people that are sort of lower on the totem pole. And it just creates all kinds of conversations. Back to the original question. How does it help people that are new in recovery? They have never listened. They have never looked somebody in the eye and been without substance present. Mm -hmm. They have never discovered the value of relationship. And I'm not talking about somebody that's going to get me into the, you know, whatever, the shoe shoe club or whatever. I mean, the value of relationship in the sense that I get a boost when I'm around people, when, it, when it's a healthy way of relating, I get a boost. They don't know that. They turn to a mm -hmm. substance or a process yeah. addiction years ago, and they don't know. So it's, it's like rediscovering that voice through play, if you like, through uh, imagining in this improv world that it could be like this and then recognizing the feelings that maybe they were missing. Through, through connection, right? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is yes. so much about connection. If you look at addiction, right, so much about addiction is about self-soothing. Right? Yeah. If we go back to your seven-year-old, right, your seven-year-old um, needed soothing because you Big lost time. that that safety and that that those hierarchical needs were not 
being met. And so that led to uh, how do I soothe, which leads to the addiction because you were missing the connection, you were missing the relationship. So it's like, there's a void, I think, when you're in that addictive state. Absolutely. And there are some, you know, in an addictive family structure, right? The members who are your ancestors, they had the same, you know, missing tools. Right. Okay. So I wasn't getting, so yeah, self-soothing becomes one of the things, but connection with others would have been the solution, would have been part of the solution. And I didn't even have those basic tools. I didn't know. Because it may not have been passed through the DNA. I'm 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 so into this neuroscience piece of it of, right, if that's missing, that does not pass on. Exactly. If, if I always heard it put, if you're, if your mom made a turkey a certain way for Thanksgiving, that's going to be the way you do it. You know, like that's just, that's what you saw. Right. That's what you got, you know? And if you're lucky, like I am, and I got into my whole addictive life and journey and all that stuff and lived through it, get to the other side of it 25 years ago, you know, I was only, I finished all that stuff. And uh, then you can, then it's like, you know, the idea of being reborn or whatever that you hear in certain wisdom traditions actually starts to make sense to me. And uh, while I'm not a born again kind of like religious guy, I do feel like I've gotten a second shot at life. And I do. I'm like, oh, my God, the color green is so green. The, the, look, at smell the wind, you know, like almost nothing can get me very happy now. So it's like you're filling in the, the gaps in order to to feel when you were seven. You needed to feel that sense of control. And I my question, I ask this a lot on our podcast, but I, I'm really yeah. curious to know, what would you tell yourself if you could go back and speak to your seven-year-old self, knowing what you mm. know now, to save yeah. yourself a lot of time? Well, I can answer that question very honestly, very accurately, because I've done it. Mm. For years, I was involved with this um, journeying exercise written by a guy named John Bradshaw. It was about healing the inner child. Mm. And one of the exercises, you take this, you can find this in one of his books. I think Um, I have that book. You probably, yeah. yeah. Oh, you do. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And you take this walk down this staircase in your mind and you go and you find this child version of you. And you mm-hmm. approach this child and you see what he does in your mind's eye or her, you know, in, in, in your mind's eye. And the first few journeys that I did with that, and this is not like, I know it's, I don't know, it could sound quite <laughs> new agey or whatever, but there was it. really something going on inside. When I, when I did this, I would lie down in the hot bath and I would run myself through the whole thing very carefully, step by step, do all the stuff that was laid out. Cause now I'm teachable. You know, I've got this new life. I'm like, I'll, I'll learn. I'll teach you. Know, I'll, I'll, I'm teachable. You can teach me. So I did it step by step and I encountered this young version of myself. And at first, you know what? This young child wouldn't even come near me. Mm. That was the truth of what I was seeing. Um, this child wouldn't come near me. So what is the sort of scientific or real corollary to that encounter? It's not just frou-frou mental stuff. No. There was a stuck part of my life internally that I engaged with through the suggestions of this like little meditation. And I wasn't like out of my mind and in some other world. It wasn't that. It was just my eyes were closed and I went through this sort of psychodrama, solo directed, 
I went through it <clears throat> and he wouldn't engage with me. And then eventually like days of doing this weeks, months, it evolved. And then he was open and then he would show me stuff. And then I let other people through it. And then I started studying psychodrama and then worked on it in groups and systems and realized this is a codified scientific system, a uh, way of approaching frozen moments in your life that you never moved past, et cetera. And it's a cousin to improv. Mm -hmm. Now, improv uses all of the, the effective, highly effective, transformative elements of theater, imaginary, playful interaction, and takes them to a theater where everybody's buying drinks and just has fun with it. Mm -hmm. There's this whole other world where people actually can help you rewire, recircuit your brain. I feel like the work I do is a middle ground. Mm -hmm. I'm no doctor, so I don't go to places offering any kind of medical anything, but I'm aware enough of how to take care of people to let them maybe lean a little bit into something that's a little bit, maybe not a laugh a second, and then we'll get back out of it. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I think one thing, this kind of coincides a bit with what I've heard you speaking about, because I know meditation is quite important to you, um, and it's something that, that you practice regularly. Um, and you talk um, a bit about, we, Gina and I talk a lot about mindset, because that's really important um, for most people that we're speaking to on a daily basis, because they're in a sales environment where they're getting pure, constant rejection. So I guess... Um, well, one of the things that I love that you you talk about is reactions. And I know you talk a lot about the pausing before you have a negative reaction to something and asking yourself, have I made myself react in that way? Like if Gina said something right now that made me upset or touched a nerve, it's me saying, I let Gina make me upset opposed to Gina made me upset. And is that kind of in line with your meditation? Because you speak a lot about that internalizing your reactions and things like that. Has meditation helped you with that? Absolutely and tremendously. And I think of meditation not so much as like the guy in the, the robes on top of the mountain as just sitting quietly mm -hmm. for a certain amount of time and, and really letting yourself it's a lot of things. Okay. It's a lot of things. Basically sitting, sitting in the morning, quietly breathing, noticing the breath. And as you develop the practice, as I, you know, as I developed the practice from, I think from September, basically of 2001, which is when I really started, I began to see the main thing meditation taught me right up front was the resistance that I actually had to not always swinging from one branch of something to the other all day long. Because <laughs> right then, if you remember 2001, we didn't really have phones the way we have yeah. them now. But it was always something. It was always, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I'm going to get into a fight with somebody, argue, to talk, do the watch TV, go eat, run around, something. Something was always happening. And when I began to meditate, I saw, wow, why do I have such an aversion to just mm -hmm. sitting? Like, it's the unknown. Because there's no plan. I'm not in charge. And right there, the moment I sit down and I'm quiet, I'm saying, I'm willing to see what comes up. I don't know who I'm talking to, but whoever's listening, I'm willing to see what comes up. In many cases, it's tears, like right away. Mm -hmm. I was holding a lot of sadness. You can't go through the things I'm describing from age seven. I'm a humorist. So I take all that pain and stuff and I transmute yeah. it into comedy, but it wasn't funny. 
It wasn't fun to go through, but I managed to dodge all that postponed feeling for a long time and started to come up in the meditation. That's why I don't blame anybody for not wanting to meditate. But you need a teacher. You get a teacher, somebody that comes by and says, hey, if you do this, it's going to pay you rich mm-hmm. dividends. Your instincts are going to get better. Your intuition is going to come back to you. You're going to gain confidence. You're also going to get in touch with the joy that's kind of at the center of your being. And, um, and you might cry a lot too. And it might be quite painful. Mm-hmm. You become really aware of all the voices. There's a lot of programming in my head, even now. Um, and in improv, look, in improv, sometimes new improvisers will just like rush mm-hmm. and hurry up and say mm-hmm. a bunch of stuff because they just want to make sure the scene doesn't fail. But that's, you know, that's what I was doing every day when I, before I got a little bit of stillness in my life. Mm-hmm. And now I'm, I'll sit with an improv partner and I'll just look at them yeah. if we need to. We do a whole scene in silence. That is probably one of the biggest ways that improv has helped me over the years is being comfortable, not just comfortable, but desiring the silence, desiring the uncertainty and the unknown. And that's one of the best moments on stage with someone as a performer when you look at each other and you're like, I have no idea what to do or say next. But if you have connection with that performer, as we do in an ensemble, you can look at each other with this peacefulness of something's going to happen. So let's just, I call it washing the dishes. Let's just start some physical object work of washing the dishes. I've written an article called Wash the Dishes. It just be in that moment and that movement will turn into something without actually having to think about it. Wow. I want to say right back to that two things. First, three things. First one is yes. Um, the second one is whether I'm doing a physical action in my improv or whether I'm definitely and clearly connected with my partner. One of the two has to be carefully attended. Mm-hmm. I either have to really yeah. see the piece yeah. of paper that I'm with or, or have something going on between me and my partner. If I attend to one or, or the yeah. other, and I can alternate and go back and forth. One of the, then what starts to happen is the audience begins to see yes. the trailer that we're yes. in or the mansion that we're in or the white yes. house, whatever yes. it is. And here's why, here's why artistically speaking, that happens. Leonardo da Vinci said something about drawing. He said, when you draw, you just need to draw a really good shoulder mm-hmm. and a really accurate elbow and a beautiful hand. And then the wrist and the upper arm to take care of itself because you've paid close attention to those key points. And the other ones will just, you know, they'll fill themselves in. And I see that as the same thing we're talking about right now. It's fascinating. And I think having that sense of stillness is something a lot of people struggle with. And it's like coming back to what we were saying at the beginning about performing and dancing with someone you will have to be comfortable being still with them otherwise you will be too intense so you will come across as desperate there are a lot of listeners so i'm from a performance background like both of you but there are a lot of listeners who might be listening to this and thinking hey look at these creative types <laughs> i'm not going to improv you're never going to get me improv um and that's 
their thing, but it, but how can you, how do you convince people, um, who maybe are uncomfortable with getting into that? Yeah, start, I would say start to work if you're willing. If you're willing to do just this, because try to get a little tiny little bit of willingness, right? It's all you need is a mustard seed. Write down why you would never improvise. Just write it down. Maybe just five mm -hmm. ideas about that. And then I'd ask them to share those with me. Because right then already they're seeing it concretely mm -hmm. written, the, the, the fear. Because it's fear. Mm -hmm. That's all. It's just a fear of something. I might fail. I might look stupid. I might say something that's really outrageous that my mother will be, like, be mad at me for. I might, you know, I might, my anger that I'm always sort of repressing might come out. They're afraid. And I understand mm -hmm. that. So we would work with, I would respect the fear first by saying, well, let's not try to change everything overnight. Let's take a little look and see. Because I'd like to try to help you be curious about something. You know, it doesn't mean we have to do it at all. So breaking it down, always breaking something down into smaller and smaller actions, you know, is, is helpful, mm. I think. Mm. I think once you get private, the thing that has been so effective for me is, is it's a liberation. When you finally get to a place of, I'm okay if I look stupid. I'm okay if I fall. I'm okay if you don't include me. I'm, I'm okay with it. It becomes liberating to just let it go and not be stuck in that constant fear. Like it's almost like I look to fail sometimes. Isn't that what meditation is in a way? It's like improvising with your thoughts because mm -hmm. I was afraid to, um, to, to meditate um, when I started learning and I had a teacher and I was afraid because I didn't want to confront all my thoughts because I was too busy. And they say, if you're too busy to meditate, then you absolutely need to meditate because otherwise things get all clogged up. And that's surely quite similar, isn't it? To improv, like mm -hmm. that, the play, but you're in, you're kind of improvising in your mind, you're acknowledging your thoughts. Would you say? I would say that you're definitely facing the fear of the unknown in, in all those cases, mm. facing the fear of the unknown. That's what everyone's afraid of. I don't know how it's going to turn out. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's a death. You know, that's fear of death. And it's real. And it's, it's kept a, we're all the great, we're all the greatest. Everybody on this planet is descended from all the people who made it, you know, in every sort of evolutionary and survival mm -hmm. phase. We're the best of the best. You're looking at us. The best. It's such a good way of The best of the it. brightest. Which we could. <laughs> We could go on forever and ever. We'll probably have to have you back because like, I want to dive more into psychodrama. I want to dive more into improv in the medical world. Um, I have done, I've worked with trial attorneys using psychodrama and improv combined. They allowed me to um, come into this special, there's this group of trial attorneys that they use psychodrama to improve their ability as trial attorneys. And it's a really fascinating because they little, use a little bit of improv, but the psychodrama part of it, they put themselves in this 360 role of understanding every person involved in that trial, right? And and then you improvise through that. So that's pretty fascinating to me. Wow. That was like one of the most transformative things that got me actually working with lawyers and using improv from a trial perspective. And then I do still do 
one of my passion projects is and I've got a project coming up where I create improv based empathy training for doctors. Like that is a like one of my favorite things to do to improve patient care using Mm. those skills of improv. Like that is, it's amazing to just watch the transformation using it that way. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And we'll get into another chapter. I'll just say it's, it's striking to me how many similarities uh, that we have. I've worked with attorneys as well extensively and also with it's standardized patient work where I would go in and pretend like I had uh, spinal meningitis, mm-hmm. you know, and I would, I would read the case and then the doctors, the student doctors would come in and they would try to have a rapport with me. Two quick vignettes from that world, which are kind of funny. Uh, my mom died in 2005 and I was doing that in 2005 to earn money and I needed to make money. And so I was in a hospital robe and anyway, they had to break it to me that I was never going to walk again. It's obviously not true. I, I do walk and they had to break it to me, but I was mourning the loss of my mother. So I would cry like mourning the loss of my mother as they were breaking it to me in the fake scenario that student doctors, and it would go way over the top and they would be like, you know, a little alarmed at the whole thing. And the other one was a guy I met one of the first days, this older guy's like in sixties. And I was like, you know, 20, I don't know what I was at the time. And he said, uh, he just sidled up to me. He goes, yeah, he goes, Dion, he goes, I like you. He goes, uh, let me tell you something about this standardized patient stuff. I was like, what is it, man? He goes like the real money's in the prostate. I was like, excuse me, sorry. What, what? Yeah, the real money's in the prostate. (laughs) Uh, I was like, I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, He was like, yeah, I let, uh, I let a bunch of students uh, during the after hours, you know, they have a, a late session with the instructors and one after the other, they give me the old prostate exam. And um, he seemed uh, it was a mixture of pride and battle scarredness, you know, in his report. So anyway, I want to tell you about that. I can tell by all the laughter. <laughs> I was just, I can't believe he said this. <laughs> I was just on every word there. Um, we're going to have to, before we wrap up, we got to talk about Barack because we just. Oh my gosh, that was going to be my one. That was going to be my one. <laughs> You've you had them all. That. You've had them all, but you oh. can have it. I'm just reminding you that. Barack's, well, hey, he isn't going anywhere. I mean, Barack's, Barack's got to show up here because yeah. I, I also like the story behind um, you becoming Barack because um, I just, I, I just like that story of like you, like, taking it on when maybe you weren't wanting to take it on. So um, I'll, I'll turn it over to Susanna because this was a question for Susanna. Well, Bar- I didn't know it was Barack. I thought it was Barack. But um, there okay. we are. Well, wait, did you just say two different words? It sounded like you said the same word twice. I didn't realize it was Barack. I thought it was Barack. So I wanna, the, normally we give you a choice, but you're, you're not getting away with the choice. You're, you're, you, okay. you're, be, we're, we're commanding you. Um, because we want you to do your impersonation on our awesome podcast of Barack Obama. But, but before he does that, though, I want him to tell the, the, I want him to tell the story of, of, and then, then embracing the becoming the Barack part of it because he's allowed. Yeah. Yeah. Is is, is he allowed? I appreciate that. In 2008. Barack Obama became president, first black president. When I was young, I was, you know, 
I didn't think we were ever going to have a black president. I didn't think, and I could do presidential impersonations when I was young. You know, I would do like Reagan and Nixon and stuff like that. I'd like to make one thing perfectly clear, you know, (laughs) and I would do that for friends and it was fun and whatever. And Ronald Reagan, you could, some people on here won't even remember Ronald Reagan, but you know, his voice was like, well, let's suppose your mom baked a big blueberry pie. And so, you know, I would do that. And I was like, I'm never going to have to do a, a black president. I'll never get an opportunity. 2008 comes around and I'm mixed up in this improv community. And a buddy of mine who had written for SNL before, he came up to me, he ran an improv theater. And he said, dude, SNL is like frantically looking for an Obama because uh, they don't have anybody in the cast that can do it. And, um, you know, you got to go audition. You have to. And I'd heard about it and I didn't audition. And I was, and I was scared. And I said, um, I said, he goes, why would you not do that? Look at you. You kind of, you know, you look like him. You look like if Obama had a baby with the Grinch is what I always get. You know. Um, so he says, you got to go do it. I said, I, I'm not going to. And I took the high ground and I said, I'm not going to do it because this man has not, all my impersonations were always rooted in mockery. You know, I'd be a little angry at a person when I was young and I'd mock them, teachers, stuff like that. I said, this guy hasn't even stepped into the public space yet. I can't do it. He goes, is it that or is it that you can't do the voice? I was like, it's a little bit of both. Um, I can't really do the voice. And so we let it go. And that was it. We didn't think about it much. And a few years later, I was doing characters on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. I broke into late night television. And I started doing uh, characters on it. Just characters I would make up. A news anchor man or what silly stuff. Dating game stuff. And then one day, one of the producers sort of semicircled me and started looking at my head shape and it was like squinting at me. And he was like, do you think you could do like Obama? And um, I had seen Obama. He had been on the show. I never met him personally, but when they did the show in North Carolina and they went away to do the show, he was on it and he was funny. I was like, this guy's got a good sense of humor about himself he would approve, you know, he would be okay with me doing it. And so my girlfriend at the time, wife now, and I just walked frantically down the street and I tried to figure out like his voice. I was like, I can't do his voice. I don't know what what he do. I I don't know what he's doing. Kept trying to pick it up and understand what his voice was like. And then she said, you know, it's not that different from your regular voice. And that kind of tuned me in a little bit. And then I picked up on a couple of things that kind of got me into it. I just preface this with, I do a terrible Obama. There are guys that do a great Obama. <laughs> but what I noticed about his voice is this. I always go, you know, uh, his voice, uh, it, it sounds like a, it's a combination between a creaky old door and a chicken is what I say. Uh, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> uh, a lot of people say, uh, well, my voice is uh, a combination between a, a creaky old door and a chicken. But, 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 but. But, but I don't hear it. I don't hear it. You know, and I always say, Barack Obama's voice, it goes along like this. If you f- listen to the cadence, it goes along like this here and then it just falls. It's like a sick bird that's flying from the north all the way down to the south, gets over Georgia and just dies. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's the rhythm. And that's how I do it. Uh, and that is Barack Obama. So- that is so awesome. How did you break into, how did you break into to doing things with Jimmy Fallon? Oh my God, that is a, that is a wonderful story. I want, I'm dying to hear this Do you want the long version one. or the short version? 
I, I, give, I give know us you the want meat, the short Give version. us the meat. Give us the meat. Okay. Um, okay. So back in 1994, okay, so I ran away from home, 17 years old, and I lived out on my own. I came back, lost 100 pounds on the hitchhiking and cocaine plan. <laughs> came back home, okay. went into the army, was in the army for four years, had a GED in the army, um, got out of the army in New York. I was in the 10th Mountain Division in New York, got out there and just called a school, just called a school, a community college and, and said, can I join? You know, I had a guitar that I had purchased uh, in the army. And I was like, I, I don't know, I'll just major in classical music, whatever time. And there's in Schenectady. Okay. And I picked Schenectady and I said, all right, I went to Schenectady County Community College. And I got my GED. I went there and I did there for like three years. And then I went over to SUNY Albany and I was going for, and mm-hmm. I switched, I switched majors in, in Schenectady. And this is all important. The, the, one of the teachers said, you know, kid, you got a hell of an ear. Why don't you switch to the, like drama, you know, and, and do that. And I said, you know, I had kind of wanted to do that before. So let me switch. And I got put the classical music stuff away. And then I went over to drama. Then I switched out of there and went to SUNY Albany, which is about 11 miles away. SUNY Albany, there was a, at the theater department, undergrad, there was a sign on the wall that said, loose camera. We're putting together a local TV comedy show. So local TV comedy show, I went and auditioned, got on the cast, 11 people. One of those people was James Thomas Fallon. Wow. So we did this show together. And then we did another show afterwards that never aired, but we worked on it and we did it and we became buddies. Uh, we were sitting on the couch together when the OJ Simpson trial happened. So like that's, we were hanging out in those, in oh. those days, right? And when the OJ Simpson run, like when he was running, you know, that's where we were. Yeah. So there we were. Jimmy and I were buddies, we're friends, very funny guy, hilarious. Obviously everybody knows it now. I went to graduate school at NYU. He went over to the Groundlings, went to Los Angeles, never saw him for a while, right? I was started on this sort of like spiritual sober journey, okay, in 1998, in the middle of that school that, you know, I was in graduate school in, in, in New York City. This is weird. Okay, so these weird synchronous things happen every once in a while in your life, and you have to listen to them when they do. So I'm walking down the street, and I just finished, you know, doing a lot of deep writing and spiritual work on 50th Street, went to my, uh, my spiritual guide's office which I never was there any other time. And then I'm walking down 50th street and somebody says, Hey, Dion. And I was like, Jimmy. Now, when we were back on that TV show, two and a half, three years before Jimmy was always like, I want to be on SNL. I want to be on SNL. I want to be on SNL. That was his vision. He was doing vision work and he was really making, you know, so he's coming down the street. He still had makeup on his face and his guitar on his back. He had just finished his Saturday Night Live audition. And we run into each other. I've never seen wow. him before in New York City. Ever. Wow. I, we, I, we only knew each other from Albany, which is three and a half hours away. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. just synchronous. Right. So he takes a picture of us, old style camera, no phones yet. This is 98 or whatever. Takes a picture of us and. He says, I found this great book called, uh, you know, Seven Spiritual Laws of Success, and you should check it out. And I checked it out, and that really helped me. And um, he's, we exchanged numbers, and he said, you know, I'll call you. And so later that summer, he calls me, goes, I got it. 
I'm on SNL. I was like, holy shit. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there was no doubt in my mind. Wow. No doubt in my mind. I was like, dude, I mean, he was so magnetic. You'd have no clue, you know, TV and movies. Like he's gotten a lot of movies and stuff that didn't do well or whatever, but his work ethic, his humor, his magnetism Mm -hmm. are just off the charts. And you have to have off the charts magnetism to, to be in that role as, as he eventually got whatever. So anyway, so he does his thing. He becomes a star. His, his, his social calendar, all this stuff just goes straight up. And I go, finish graduate school and working in Shakespeare in the park with Alice and Janney and this and the other thing. And I'm doing whatever <laughs> and trying to make it all work. And I just hit a total bottom around everything. You know, I'm just like, <laughs> I can't do this. I was in the middle of playing in Hamlet and I was a little ancillary nobody in Liev Schreiber's Hamlet in New York City at the Public Theater. And I had this moment right around this time where I was like, I could see the audience. The director, Andre Serban, had brought the lights up in the audience so that all the players in Hamlet, Liev Schreiber included, could see the audience. And when I saw the audience, I had like a meltdown. I, I was realizing that my whole life, I was trying to get my parents to love and see me. And that's why I was an actor. Mm-hmm. And I was like, they're not yes. here. Like, they're not here. When you have blinding lights in your eyes, and you're in that mindset and you're still trying to get your parents to love you and see you, uh, darkened audiences, you know, a darkened uh, stage where you're blinded and you can't see the audience will work effectively as a psychodramatic replay of what you're trying to get to happen. He turned the lights on and I collapsed. I was like, this can't, this is not enough. Trying to get my parents to love me is not enough. And I'm starting to hang around with wiser people and people that can sort of help me and guide me. So I quit all that stuff for a long time. And I just went on a personal journey trying to figure out like where I fit in this world and what was about about mom dies 2005. We talked about that 2006, 2007. I'm going to therapy, heavy stuff, learning about all these things that I never got care and real attention around before. And I was giving it to myself and that was it. And that was my visit to the mountain. And I was getting a little bit stronger and a little bit stronger and a little bit stronger at all times. Now, when I was in graduate school, I don't know if you know the show, How I Met Your Mother, you know, with Neil Mm -hmm. Patrick Harris and Josh Radner. Mm -hmm. Josh Radner and I were in the same class at this NYU program, and we're best friends to this day. And I always told him, I said, you look like Jimmy. You look like this guy, Jimmy. This guy, Jimmy's going to be big. And I would tell him in class, he was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know. And now, you know, everybody thinks they kind of look like at a certain point. And obviously, they're both Mm -hmm. big. So, finish with this therapy in 2010 or 11. All this time I'm thinking, I got to go talk to Jimmy. I got to, you know, ask him, you know, if I, if he can help me, you remember, save me, Mm -hmm. save me. But I knew I could not approach this guy. If all I was about was save me, I had to wait until I had something to give. I knew it instinctually. And that wasn't until I was finished with this long sort of therapy at the veterans hospital. And I get to this one day, it's the last day of therapy at the Veterans Hospital. Boom, I'm sitting in this cafeteria. I'm eating my little weighed and measured meal because I'm like in, I'm getting help with food. I'm getting help with living in a sober way, all this stuff. And my buddy Josh texts me and he says, hey, by the way, because he just directed a movie, I'm going to be a guest on Fallon's show. Should I say hi to him for you? Basically, he's checking. Do you really know this guy as well as you said you did? Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. I said, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Say hi to him. Oh, yeah, of course. He'll, yeah, he'll remember me. I hope, I think. I think he'll remember me. Sure. So he goes, okay. And I'm sitting there in this 
hospital, veterans hospital uh, cafeteria. And the sun is coming in through the window. And I think to myself, you know what? I would like to go with him and say hi to Jimmy. You know, I'd just like to say hi. I'm okay now. I'm ready. And so I text my buddy back and I say, can I go with you? Be part of your entourage. He goes, sure. Come down to the hotel, blah, blah, blah. And I go down to the hotel. We ride up in this little car. We go. We're at 30 Rock. I go upstairs. We're in the dressing room. And Jimmy has a habit. He goes around to every guest beforehand, spends a few minutes with him just before they're going to go out. And I'm in this dressing room with my buddy, Josh. And I'm thinking, is Jimmy going to remember me? I hope he does. I mean, I hope he does, you know, because I've been out of everything for a long time, you know, doing the important work, but not in showbiz or anything. Jimmy walks in, opens the door, says hi to Josh, looks over, sees me splayed out on this, like this chaise lounge. And he says, where have you been? Where have you been? And he says, you guys, there's the entourage and the photographer, everybody, Josh, this is one of the funniest guys I know. Come here. And he hugs me up. And I was very like just oh. taken and emotional about the whole thing. I was just like, because you're hoping somebody remembers you, but to remember you with that kind of, and that is what I love about him to this day is mm. his enthusiasm and his generosity with his own energy, mm. you know? So he sends word back after the show, you know, through a producer. Hey, why don't you come do a bit on the show? And Lana, da, 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 uh. and I started doing bits. And then after like 110 of these, you know, the most recent one, I had COVID like three weeks ago and I couldn't do it, but there was another one that we were going to do. So like that, that's, that's how it happened. That's what an amazing, thank you for giving us the long version of that. Like that is <laughs> such, welcome. that's such an amazing story. And I just kind of want to um, bring it kind of full loop because you, you made this comment about being on stage and trying to get your parents to love you. And there was something that just hit me that the thing that we aspire for that love, that acceptance in that moment, like it literally, like it's moved me emotionally. Like in that moment when he's like, come here, where have you been? Like, I, I don't know if you felt it, but I felt this moment of pure love. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. And, and until you made the connection in the story between me wanting the love of my parents and then that moment, um, I hadn't really consciously made that connection, but it's there. And thank you for pointing it out. It was that reception that I was looking for. And I couldn't get it from 2001 at that moment in Hamlet until I got every whole piece that I needed to bring myself to the entertainment business with something to give. And that's when I was ready. And we all know not everybody, you know, gets that opportunity to become balanced before they go and make it. You know, my dad said to me one time, I don't talk much about him today, but you know, there's a whole journey with my dad. My dad said to me one time, you know, I'm really glad you didn't make it early. You know, you know, at that time, he said, I'm really glad you didn't make it. And I was like, thanks, dad. But what he meant was, you know, I would have killed myself because if I had like gotten success right out of the gate yeah. or something. Without being healed and exactly. more evolved. But that was, uh, that was, I don't know, that was a powerful moment for me because I, I felt the journey 
because I think so many of us have been through that journey, especially performers and actors. Like we do do sometimes we're in this because we're seeking that kind of acceptance or soothing. And, um, and I've gone through similar journeys of like just wanting my mother to love me. And then one day woke up and said, I don't need her to mm. love there it me is. because I am surrounded by so much love from others that I could finally let go of that. And that was the moment that that that's what came up for me just yeah. now. I'm so happy. I want to tell you, I'm so happy that it reached you and that it touched you. That means something to me. And if I may, I'd like to bring it back around to what you were asking before, because I don't think it was this concrete in my mind, but these guys with their arms folded, the people that think that they don't have anything to get from what you're doing. Honestly, what I do is I reveal those vulnerable things rather than the package, the patina of professionalism and all that stuff, which I have all the photos and that stuff, but I don't, I don't, I I connect through the vulnerable story. And then most, if not all of the people with their arms crossed and whatever come forward, they're no longer ones and twos. They're now sevens and eights and they're all playing. Yeah. This was powerful. And I love the instinct that you've had throughout yeah. this. Like when you, the, the end of that story, when you said it's time to go and see him, it was like you knew that you were ready in your mind. You had that instinctive feel, um, which you had in your core, you know, it's fascinating. And just to loop that back to what we were talking about earlier, I would say at the, when that moment happened, I had been meditating steadily for 10 years. So Mm -hmm. I could hear thoughts like that Mm -hmm. guidance or maybe clear thoughts Mm -hmm. of intuition and inspiration because there's some space that I was, you know, working on creating. Wow. I'm so inspired. Yeah. This, um, this was amazing, Dion. I'm so happy. I'm so happy to be here. I'm glad you guys were happy with it. (laughs) I know it was, uh, like it actually brought tears to my eyes. I've never seen her cry. So good. (laughs) <laughs> you have not. This, this is true. Uh, Susanna, you always got something um, crazy to end a show with. Do you have that today or or have we ended powerfully no, enough? I can't talk that. In fact, he's already done it. <laughs> well, wait, well, wait, 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 Gina, you and I have to do a scene. That, that that Susanna comes up with. Yeah, At yeah, least, yeah. Can you? Yeah. What, what if Susanna? Okay. What if you just one. gave us? I've got a brilliant. Well, one. How about, what what oh, if gosh. you what if you gave us like the who uh-uh. who we are to each other? Okay, okay. And where we are? Okay, I can do that. I can do that. So Gina, is this insensitive mm-hmm. because she's just passed away? No, it's not. Um, you're you're going to Im- imitate the Queen in your best English accent. <laughs> Oh, and God. you have an Obama was actually a very big, um, big fan of the Queen. They had a great relationship. So I don't know if this is insensitive because she passed away. I don't think it is. Um, you, you are going to play Obama, and Gina, you are going to be the Queen, <laughs> saying to Obama that he served really, he served really you well as you president. Don't, you don't- you don't got to write the script. You could just, yeah, tell, you us, could just, you tell, just us, tell us yeah, where we we'll just are. Do that. So where just, are we located? Just tell us give where us, are we? Give us a location that has, listen, wait, wait. Give us a location that has nothing to do with either one of okay. them. Okay. In the French cafe. About to pour some wine. Hmm. Ready, steady, go. Barack. 
You're looking quite, quite dapper. Well, uh, you know, I appreciate that, Your Majesty. Uh, it's I'm so glad that you were able to come out on this. Uh, I don't want to call it a date, but uh, <laughs> um, it, it it's it it. Well, we could call it a date. Uh, I mean, uh, sure. Um, let me let me pour you some wine. Would you? Like well, that that'll be great. Here we go. Let me get this. Here we go. Uh, mm. I'll set this down here. Wait. Oh. Mm. Oh. 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 <laughs> Oh, lovely. Let me, let me, let me, uh, I'll taste it. Uh, Just a second here. All right, it's fruity, fruity, and got a nice, uh, got a nice afterburn. I prefer, I prefer a a Pinot Grigio, uh, but I I like what you've chosen. It is very, uh, American. Well, now I, I understand that that has, you know, uh, a little bit of a barb attached to it. Uh, but, 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 but that's okay. We're not, that's kind of why I asked you to come here. We're, We're viewed as, uh, ignorant and kind of without class and you kind of represent class itself. And I was hoping this is, this is true. We are we are way classier than you, and we are okay with that. It's all right because it gives us dimension as a people. It keeps our monarchy where it should be when you show that you're not as good as us. Look, I, I, and here's the part of it. Okay, so I'm so glad you said that, and and I'm glad no one's listening here. I feel the same way. You know, I feel like. All right, you know, I'm I'm the first black president, but I am a little better than, you know, everybody who who didn't become president. And what I was hoping to do is how do I keep it going? I'm I was thinking okay. about we only do four, eight years. We do eight years. You've done you've done sixty at this point. It's it's been a long time and I've been wondering about this. Why is it that you only do four years? Uh, George, you uh, lo- need to come over to our way. I know. Well, it had to do with George Washington. You don't want to look like you want to become a king, and we had stuff against you. But there's a lot of advantages. I mean, you you and your little corgis running around, so cute. There's a lot more advantages. If you come over to our country, you could have full reign. You know, my son really shouldn't be in charge. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. I mean, I don't like to. I've had a little too much <laughs> wine right now. It's okay. Good. Cut to six months later. Obama <laughs> is now uh, Prince Obama. And he comes out on the balcony. He, enjoy, he comes out. He's waiting behind the curtain and they're on the balcony to present him. All <laughs> hail. All hail, Prince Obama. Uh, hey, everybody. Uh, it's so good. Uh, I'm glad everybody's here for the, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, well, don't, don't throw stuff. That is not dignified of a country just because he is here. We do not act like Americans. (laughs) Well, well, Americans. That really puts me. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And see. And see. And see. Awesome job, Obama. You were incredible, queen. (laughs) Your, your English accent was the best yet. It was the best I've seen you do. Well, well whenever you put me on the spot for You're an English better. accent. That was I great. That was a wonderful. I could feel I, oh, we were, I could see hilarious. the cafe. I could see the balcony <laughs> of the castle. Oh, wow. Oh, my that was gosh. Great. That, that was fun. Was, that I wish was it didn't so happen. Fun. I wish uh, it actually I've, happened, that conversation. 
maybe the uh, maybe 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 we'll have Nia start the show with this uh, clip at the beginning of the show. That'll be that'll throw everybody off who's listening. That's a great idea. Um, So much fun. Will you please come back and hang out and play with us and all kinds of things like that? Absolutely. You don't want me to plug anything or Uh, just no, just yeah, no, just. You got anything you want to plug? Anything coming yeah, well, up? Yeah, I anything? definitely have something to plug. What you, got, you kidding? what do you got coming up? What do you got coming up? First of all, I have the improviser's mindset spelled in the British way with an O-R, improvisal's mindset. Nice, uh, nice. That's improvisersmindset.com. And people can go there anytime and they can meet us. Oh, yeah, Wednesdays yeah. at 1 p.m. They can meet us and they can do a free Ooh. drop-in half-hour class with Fantastic. Me the teachers. I'm going to be one of the speakers at the Irma Bombeck Writers Conference in Oct- October Ooh. 20th through 22nd. That's in Dayton, Ohio. Lorraine Newman and Alan Zweibel um, and a number of other people will be there. Uh, Kathy Geiswhite, the Kathy cartoonist. Um, Sweet. Yeah, that'll be great. And uh, that's it. I got some books that are uh, in the works, and but I'll announce those later. Cool. And And so if people want to like, connect with you directly find you best best website to go to improvisersmindset.com or dionflynn.com okay cool 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 and you're on all the socials yes so dion flynn official uh, and improvisers mm-hmm. mindset and uh dion fly yeah i follow you on the socials right. so right. um so follow dion there this has been true joy and pleasure and fun and inspirational and deep and all the things and um, we would love to have you back and stay up to date with everything you're Thank doing. Thank you so much. I loved hanging out with you too. And I'm so glad we got to meet and let's see what we're going to do in the future. Future. Yeah. You. <laughs> thank you. Uh, all right, Warners. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Women Your Mother Warned You About brought to you by Sales Gravy. This has been so fun. Check us out at womenyourmotherwarnedyouabout.com. You can also find Susanna and I at salesgravy.com. All the things, but it is past Susanna's bedtime in the UK. She's got to go to bed and I got to go to dinner and Dion's got things to do. So see y'all. Ciao. Yeah, the real money's in the prostate.